uh, about the chances uh, to talk with very interesting people, and some of them are very interesting indeed. As you've heard already from a report from, uh, from our folks that we were in New Orleans Monday through Thursday. Every morning we had a backyard Bible club for kids ranging between uh, 2 to 12 uh, and we even had some teenagers walk up every once in a while looking to play basketball and, and play the game, stuff like that. Monday, we worked at the Love and Action Food Bank. Tuesday, the Crescent City Adult Daycare Center. Wednesday, we worked with the Homeless Ministry at Duncan Plaza. Thursday was Water Bottle Evangelism. It was a full week, and our students were exhausted by the end of it. We've shared those things with you. One thing you haven't heard from us, though, and I want to I draw this out, bring it to your attention. One thing you haven't heard from us, though, is we haven't gone through statistics or we haven't uh, shared numbers. And there is a very good reason for that. It's because we don't know the numbers. We don't know the statistics of the people that we talked to, of the people that we saw. We didn't keep track of numbers, but we do have stories. We might not be able to tell you how many kids walked up. We, not, we might not be able to tell you how many homeless people we handed a sandwich to. We might not be able to tell you numbers and statistics, but if you ask some of our students, like Shauna, she can tell you about the two sisters that were in her group named Jasmine and Nakaya. And those two little girls came up later on in the week, and when we shared the gospel with them the first time, they looked at Shauna and they thought, how are we ever going to remember this? That was on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, they sat down with Shauna and they told her the gospel. We can tell you stories about Casey, how he had a young man named Jordan walk up. And Jordan, he didn't want to act like he wanted anything to do with us. He wanted to, to show us that he was too cool to be there. But Jordan would show up every single morning without fail. And Casey walked up next to him. And Casey sat down beside him. And Casey shared the gospel with Jordan multiple times, even though Jordan thought he was too cool. And he heard the word of God preached. I could talk to you and you could ask uh, uh, Becca or Katie McPherson or Cameron Vines and they could tell you about this guy named Michael that they went to while we were passing out water bottles and they shared the gospel with Michael. And Michael didn't want anything to do with the gospel. In fact, he looked at those three girls and he said to them, that just seems like a cruel God. He was missing it. He didn't understand the gospel. He didn't see the grace of God. He was hurt, and he was upset, and all he, all he could do was focus on negatives. But they poured out their heart to him, and they showed him that they loved him even if he didn't understand. And he walked away with a smile on, their, on his face because even though he didn't understand the love of God, he understood the love of those students. I could tell you about how we went to the senior center and how Cameron Gillum sat down with <laughs> Miss Ida Lovins, St. Thomas, Virginia Islands. And the reason why we know that, oh, what did I say? Not Virginia Islands, Virgin Islands. See, I messed that up. They didn't mess it up. You want to know why? Because they were told that 3,000 times while they were there. And that might be a conservative estimate. 
They can tell you about how she was either 97, 98, or 99, or 100, depending on who you asked. And she got up there and she told them who she was countless times, told them the gospel multiple times. They even uh, tagged Tim Evans in a post on Facebook saying we found our next preacher. If you go up to Cortland and if you ask him, tell me about this guy named Mark. That's what you're going to get. Because Mark might be the oddest person that we met on the whole trip, and he was certainly the most foul-mouthed person we met on the trip. Yeah, he was the oddest, I think the oddest, but he had some serious competition by a man named Paul who walked up and he told Mary, he said, he said, I hope you enjoy your French fries in the New Jerusalem. Enjoy your French fries in the New Jerusalem. We don't have statistics. We don't have numbers. But we have stories. We know people. And that's what the gospel is about. I'm always leery when I hear people come back and they talk about we were able to speak to 200 people and we were able to see so many people come to convert it and they can tell you stats and they can tell you numbers, but they can't tell you a single person's name that they talk to. That's all our students have are names. They don't have numbers. And that's what the gospel's about, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And as I prepared for this morning's sermon, I considered the backdrop of where we just came from, New Orleans, and the stories and the experiences that we had. But I also was looking forward to this week, because this week is a big week for our country. The 4th of July is coming up. We get to celebrate the birth of our nation. It's an exciting time for our country. And we just got back from one of the most recognizable cities in our entire nation, New Orleans. Who in our country doesn't know stories about New Orleans? When you think of things in America, even in other countries, they'll think about New York City, they might think about California, they'll think about the president, but certainly New Orleans is up there. We just came back from one of the most recognizable cities in America, and the thing that we can walk away telling you with absolute certainty is the gospel must be preached. And it must be preached not just to statistics. It must be preached to people. It must be taught, and it must be declared to Michael, or it must be declared to Mark or Paul or Jasmine, or Nakiah, or Will, or any of those names that you've heard. The gospel's for people. It's for individuals. And so what I want us to do, I want us to open up in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Everybody open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And our focus this morning is going to be on evangelism. 
It's going to be on a how do we evangelize? How do we take the gospel to people, to individuals? Not just to statistics, not just to numbers. How do we take the gospel to people in our country who need it, who must hear the gospel preached? And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think it's interesting that, uh, and I want to do it just this week, I think it's interesting we always stand for the national anthem. We always stand for uh, uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. We stand for those things. And today, in terms of standing for our allegiance, as I read the Scriptures, I would ask that let's all stand together for the reading of the Word of God this morning. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. And now these two verses are going to be the where we really where we really find where we're going to be staying in the focus of our our time this morning. But it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due. For what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Let us pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you would cause us to rejoice this morning to rejoice in your words, rejoice in your son, to rejoice in your gospel. And Father, that you wouldn't let this be one of those times we come to church and we just sit around and we don't consider what it's going to look like tomorrow when we go into our jobs or when we go with our families or friends or wherever we are. But God, this would be one of those sermons that you would help us to just quake because we cannot wait to get up. We cannot wait to persuade others as Paul talked about in these verses. I pray that your spirit would be here and that it would work in our hearts, that you would move, that you would be big and grand and glorious, and we would not be able to shut our mouths about your gospel. Let that be what we experience this morning. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we ask these things and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the emphasis, as you've heard me say, of this sermon is going to be evangelism. So verses 10 and 11 are going to receive the the bulk of our attention. Those are going to receive uh, what we look at and we'll really pull out the most uh, of of our time. But I want to give us the context. And that's why we read verses 1 through 11 and not just verses 10 and 11. And the context of it is this. Now, we're focusing on... 
that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's judgment there. And then verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So you've got judgment and you've got persuasion. And they're, they're, they're hand in hand. Because of this judgment that he talks about, he mentions persuasion. And so I want us to have the context of how he got to that place. So if you will, just for a moment, let's look through verses 1 through 9. We'll get kind of the context of why he says these things. And then we're going to jump into evangelism. So Paul has spent time in verses 1 through 9 looking into eternity. He talks about, and he uses the language of of a tent. And now that's a temporary dwelling place. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. In other words, he's saying that we have a place here on the earth. We have a reason We have a structure here on the earth, but it's a tent. It's temporary. It's not permanent. And if that tent were destroyed, we have an eternal building in heaven from God. So he's making this comparison with tents and buildings, talking about our life here on earth versus eternity, which we'll spend. And so as he does that, he, he focuses on the good of heaven. And he looks into eternity, and he sees what heaven's going to be like, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful, it's magnificent. And he even goes so far in verse 7, uh, hang on, uh, Excuse me, uh, not in verse 7. I wrote it down wrong in my notes, everybody. Forgive me, please. Let me just read real quick. He makes the statement that we long to be in our eternal body. We desire to be home with the Lord. That's verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Heaven is so grand, it's so magnificent, it's so wonderful that when you compare the tent that we live in to the building that God has for us, we long to be with God. We long to be with the Lord. And Paul himself even had visions of heaven. Did you guys know that? Did some of y'all know that? Paul himself had visions of heaven. He describes, he describes what he can In 2 Corinthians 12, just a few chapters over, it says, I must go on boasting, though though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things. Now pay attention here. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, 
I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is a vision that Paul had, whether in the body or, or not, he's not sure. And he says twice, God knows if it was just a vision or if I was called up there in the body. But Paul saw heaven. He saw the grandness, the gloriousness of heaven being with Christ. He witnessed it. But verse 4 is crucial. It's very crucial to our country right now. It's very crucial to our churches now. He says, and he heard things that cannot be told. In other words, Paul got to see and experience the grandness of heaven, but he was not allowed to speak on those things. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that. It's funny that if Paul was caught up in heaven, if he saw those things and he was not permitted to speak about them, it's interesting to me that we have people all the time now writing books about how they died, went to heaven, and now they're allowed to write about it. I don't think that that's a biblical agenda. Paul was forbidden to write about it. I'll go even further. We know a man named Lazarus who was dead for four days. And Jesus came and raised him from the grave. If anybody was fit to write a best-selling book about what heaven is like, it would be Lazarus because he had been dead for four days. And then Jesus got him up. But he didn't write a book. Why? Because those things are not for us now. We can get swept up in them. We can be, we can have you ever heard the term, be so heavenly focused that we're no earthly good? Paul was wrestling with that here. He had seen the grandness, the greatness, and the glory of heaven. And he was saying, I can't talk about it because just understand that right now I'm in this tent, but there's a, a, a building prepared for us in heaven by God, and I would rather be in that building because he'd seen what it looked like. But that's not for us now. The only person who came close to writing uh, what it would be like would be uh, John, and we wrote Revelation. And if you really want a, a good description of heaven, go read Revelation 21 and 22, and you'll be blown, blown away by it. I mean, it almost drove John mad to write about it. So he sits there, and his focus here on the text, on the, uh, in the verses that we've been reading, he's seen greatness in heaven. And so as he looks there, he recognizes that, that to be in the presence of Christ is far greater than our presence here on earth. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. It's glorious. There's a story that John Piper tells. Uh, you hear a lot of people who talk about, see, the reason why the Lord didn't give us or I think part of the reason why the Lord didn't give us a lot of descriptions is because heaven's all about Christ. It's all about God. And so many times when you hear these people come back, what they talk about is streets of gold, or they talk about pearly gates, or they talk about their grandfather or their grandmother, or they talk about a brother or sister, or they talk about all these other relationships except for Christ. When Christ, God and His glory, that's the big deal about heaven. 
John Piper tells a story about a little girl who lost her grandmother. And they were, uh, the, the family got on a plane to fly, to go to the funeral. And on the plane, the little girl looks out the window, sees all the clouds, sees all the beauty of the sky. Uh, and the mom sees her looking out the window and she's going to do some heart work while they're on the way. And she says, she says, look, darling, look at all the clouds and the beauty out there of the sky. It's just like heaven where Nana is. And the little girl looks back at her mom and she said, but Jesus isn't there. And see, if we get that, then we understand the greatness of heaven. Heaven is about being with Christ. It's about being with Jesus. And Paul has seen it. And so for the believer, he's saying there is nothing greater than what God has prepared for us. But in stark contrast to that, in stark contrast to the greatness of heaven that he has seen, that he wants to be in, he makes a statement in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Heaven's not for everyone. Not everyone will go to heaven. That's a scary thing to think about. So if not everyone will go to heaven, where is the alternative? And it's hell. And I'm going to read, uh, this is a, it came out from the Moody Press in September 1985. It's just a, a, a very, very helpful, uh, very help, helpful little article. It's written by John Thomas. It's called That Hideous Doctrine. If heaven is the greatness that he's looking at, and it's because you can be with Christ, then separation from Christ that you experience because of the judgment, then the hell that an unbeliever will be sent to, that's a terrifying thing. Let me read this to you. It says, That hideous doctrine of hell is fading. How often have you thought of it in the past month, for instance? Does it make a difference in your concern for others, in your witness? Is it a contrast and proper burden? Most believers would say no. But the individual isn't the only one to blame. After all, the doctrine, is no, long, uh, the doctrine no longer gets its float in the church parade. It has become a museum piece at best stored in the shadows of the far corner. The reality of hell, however, demands we haul the monstrous thing out again and study it until it changes us. Ugly, garish, and familiar as it is, the doctrine will indeed have a daily, practical, and personal effect on every believer who comes to terms with its force. Our Lord's words on the subject are unnerving. In Luke 16, he tells us of a rich man who died and went to Hades, the abode of the unsaved dead, between death and the final judgment. From that story and a few other revelatory facts, we can infer several characteristics of hell. First, it's a place of great physical pain. The rich man's initial remark concludes with his most pressing concern, I am in agony in this flame. That's Luke 16, 24. We do not make enough of this. We all have experienced pain to some degree. We know it can make a mockery of all life's goals and beauties. Yet we do not seem to know pain as a hint of hell, a searing foretaste of what will befall those who do not know Christ, a grim reminder of what will be, what will be spared from. 
God does not leave us with simply the mute fact of hell's physical pain. He tells us how real people will respond to that pain. Our Lord is not being macabre. He is simply telling us the truth. First, there will be weeping. Luke 13, 28 tells us that. Weeping is not something we get a grip on. It's something that grips us. Recall how you were affected when you last heard someone weep. Remember how you were moved with compassion to want to protect and restore that person. The Lord wants us to know and consider what an unsettling experience it is for the person in hell. Another response will be wailing. That's Matthew 13, 42. While weeping attracts our sympathy, wailing frightens and offends us. It is the pitiable ball of a soul seeking escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. A wail is sound gone grotesque because of the conclusions we can't live with. A third response will be gnashing of teeth, and that's Luke 13, 28. Why? Perhaps because of anger or frustrations. It may be a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary to cry any longer. Hell has two other aspects rarely considered, which are both curious and frightening. On earth, we take for granted two physical properties that help keep us physically, mentally, and emotionally stable. The first is light. The second is solid, fixed surfaces. Oddly, these two dependables will not accommodate those in hell. Hell is a place of darkness, Matthew 8, 12 tells us. Imagine the person who has just entered hell, a neighbor, relative, co-worker, friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first forever, uh, he spends his first uh, part of forever and thinks his mind labors through the blackness until he aches. Forever, he whispers in wonder. The idea uh, deepens, widens, and towers over him. The next thing is he's falling for all of eternity. That there is no solid ground, there is no firm hold where he can be stable. Forever, he whispers in wonder. And he realizes that this condition will last for all of eternity. The awful truth spreads before him like endless, overlapping slats. When I put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will not have accomplished one thing. I will not have one second less to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant, occupant entertains a similar ambition. In life, he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief, perhaps even hell, if one could rest from time to time, would be more tolerable. He learns, though, that the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day or night. That's Revelation 14. Thoughts of this happening to people we know, people like us, are too terrifying to entertain for long. The idea of allowing someone to endure such torture for eternity violates the sensibilities of even the most severe judge among us. We simply cannot bear it. Paul has seen the grandness of heaven, and it reminds him that there are those who will not go there. They will spend all of eternity, all of forever, in hell. And it's a terrifying, awful, scary place. And so what does Paul tell us 
in light of those two realities and with those thoughts firm on our mind, there is a heaven that is for the believer. There is a hell that is for the unbeliever. So where does Paul go and where should our mind be led? 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, in light of these realities, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. The truth about eternity should weigh down upon us and it should make us so uncomfortable that anyone would spend an eternity away from the Christ that we so love and adore that we must say something. We must go. We must share. We must beg. We must implore. We must speak the truth about Christ because without Christ, they are doomed to a forever without Him. That is what the realities of eternity should cause to stir up in us. But far too often, we hear about heaven, we hear about hell, and we sit on our seats, we Don't get up. We think, I don't want to offend that person by talking to them about things that matter. We have grown calloused. We have grown, uh, we've grown weary of these stories. And so everyone else must be weary of these stories. We must recognize the severity of the call of the gospel of Christ. And it should compel us to get up and go to persuade others. There's a a famous magician. His name is Penn Gillette. He's an atheist. You might have heard. uh, He does a a, a magic show. It's, It's Penn and Teller. And... He doesn't believe in God. He even goes so far as to say he knows there's not a God. But after one of his shows, there was a believer standing in the back. And he waited till Penn had spoken with all those who'd been in the magic show. And he walks up and he hands him a Bible and says, I I just want you to have this. It was a, a Gideon New Testament. I want you to have this. I want you to consider the things that it says. And, and you would think that this man who's an atheist, and he's not just, he's not a silent atheist. He's a very well-spoken atheist. He's an atheist who is firm in his belief in atheism. You would think he would be angered over receiving the New Testament, but he wasn't. And this is what he said. He, he didn't call it being witnessed to. He called it, uh, he called it, to be proselytized, to be solicited. And he said that he appreciated that that man brought him a Bible. Why did he appreciate it? He goes on further to say that if he's a Christian and if he really believes 
that, 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 that Penn would go to hell when he died, if he really believed that, if he really, truly believed that he could be saved from that, and he didn't tell him that he would be the worst kind of person. He would be a person who hated him. I'll read his direct quote. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? This is a man who doesn't believe in God, but it's a man who looks at it and he says, the realities of hell are so terrifying and they are so real to understanding Christianity that if you believe I can be saved from that and you don't tell me, you must hate me. An atheist understands that. It's time, North Clay, for us to understand that. So how shall we preach? How should we go and how should we tell people? How should we go to persuade others? The most popular method in America today is to say God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the most popular way of of evangelizing in today's society. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And they get that, they base that off of the words of Jesus in John 10, 9 and 10. It says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so people in America say, you see, God wants you to have an abundant life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to have an abundant life. But let me tell you that Abundance doesn't mean wonderful. It doesn't mean great. It doesn't mean prosperous. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means full. To have an abundant life means to have a full life. So if we consider the Apostle Paul, who wrote the Scripture that we're in right now, who wrote the passage, did he have an abundant life? Absolutely. Did he have a prosperous life? No. And he writes about it. In the very book we're in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he writes about his abundant life, and he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Oh, Paul had an abundant life. He had a full life, but it wasn't always a prosperous one. So the the idea of just telling someone in an evangelistic strategy, God has a wonderful plan for your life, that, that doesn't match up with where the Scripture says. Because you don't always find a prosperous life in Christ. 
And can you imagine, let's rewind back in time, can you imagine if the job was set before you to preach the gospel and if you could do it in reverse uh, time, the job was set before you to preach the gospel to men and women who worked in the World Trade Center on September 10th, 2001, the day before the attacks on our country. Could you go up to those people who worked in the World Trade Center knowing that the following day they would be killed? Could you walk up to them and you, could you say, God has a wonderful plan for your life? No. But do you know what you would do? You would plead with them. You would share with them the gospel with fervor, with passion, with courage. You would tell them of the realities of hell and judgment apart from Christ. You would tell them of the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. You would tell them of His sacrifice on the cross, of His removing our sins, of giving us new life, and then Him raising on the third day. Those are the things you would say. Why? Because you realize that telling someone God has a wonderful plan for your life, when you know that their doom was imminent, that would not be a message that would be true. Men and women, we don't know when the last day will be for anyone on this planet. And so we cannot say with any certainty to any one person, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But what we can tell them, what we can say to them, is the reality of the gospel of Christ. And Jesus models it. And I want you to know that our students went to New Orleans, and this is the way they evangelized people. This is the way they spoke to men and women and boys and girls. And they did it with boldness. And I was blessed to sit there and hear some of their preaching. They did it with boldness, confidence, conviction, and they did it biblically. So how do we share the gospel? How do we do it? Christ gives us a very good model for it in Luke 18. And it goes, it's verses 18 through 30 when the rich young ruler comes to him. You've heard the story before. Rich young ruler comes to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if someone came up to us and said, How can I be saved? We'd be over the moon about it. We should be thrilled. Jesus is thrilled as well, but Jesus' tactic is very different than the way we would go about it. Jesus doesn't say, well, come here to me. Come here, come here. You're going to be a part of my group. He doesn't welcome him in. He doesn't, he doesn't pull him in, and he doesn't pray to him. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to ask me into your heart. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he directs them, he directs the rich young ruler to the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He points them to five of the Ten Commandments. And, and this is what kills me. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. You know, we had a couple of kids in the backyard Bible club who we took them through the law. We took them through the Ten Commandments. And they would sit there and be like, I'm good. I'm okay. And we would work with them to help them see, no, 
You've broken these things. But the, rea- the, 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 the place, the, the, real, the reality, the realization hasn't hit the rich young ruler yet. He says, I've kept them, these things from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So he points him to five of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't get it, so he points him to one other. It was the heart of the second commandment, have no other idol before me. And he points him to the idolatry that he has in his heart. And the man realizes where he stands before God. He recognizes the eternity that he is faced with. And what does he do? says that when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus points the rich young ruler to the law. And all of a sudden, this man isn't just looking at his condition here on the earth. He's not looking at the tent. Jesus points him to eternity, to forever. And he says, in light of this law, you stand guilty. And I want you to know something. Our students proclaim that with boldness to men and women, boys and girls. That without Christ, we stand guilty before the law of God. Not only do we stand guilty before the law of God, but there is a judgment coming. And because we've broken the law of God, and it's every single person in this room, myself included, because we've broken the law of God, we are criminals to God's law. And if we are criminals to God's law, we deserve to be punished under God's law. Now, I deserve it, and so do you. And the reality is, and I tell it this way to the kids, and I tell it to you because it's true. When someone breaks into a home, steals your things, then he's caught, they take him to prison. In the same way, when we are criminals to God's law, He has prepared a prison for those who have broken it. It's hell. It's that hideous doctrine. He has prepared that place for all those who have broken His law, and that's you, and you, you, that's me. So when we share the gospel with people, we have to get them to start thinking not about the tent that they dwell in, but about eternity and about judgment. And your students just did that all week long with boldness. But then we get to turn a corner. And we get to say, there is eternity. There is a hell that exists without Christ. But there is a Christ who has come and He has paid your fine so that you can have your sins removed from you, so that you can have the punishment of your sins taken away. He did that. He bore your iniquity on the cross. He removed from you all of the things that you've done wrong. And He gave you His righteousness. He gave to you His goodness. And because of that, you no longer Stay under the condemnation of the law, but you can be free. 
to live in the reality of an eternity that Paul was saying it's far better for me to be in the building of God than to be in this tent. That's the reality you can now live in. That's the truth you can now walk in. But it's not automatic. Mark 1.15 tells us that we must repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means we turn from our wickedness. We return from those things that we've done against God. And we believe in the gospel. And you've just heard the gospel. That without Christ, you stand under the law. But with Christ, you can be free from the law. But it's not just believing like, okay, I can get that, sure, whatever. It's it's an all-in kind of a thing. If you were on an airplane and the pilot came over and he said, put on a parachute because the plane's going down and you're going to have to jump, you'd put on a parachute. And you would trust in it. You would strap it in. You'd make sure it was on tight. That's the kind of trust. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. It's an all-in sort of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, our students just shared that from beginning to end. And I gave them a a little, we we did S-J-S-F, sin, judgment, save your faith. And they walked through that little model and they took, them, took people through that gospel. And there were people who were convinced. There were people who were blown away at it. There were people who turned from it. But our students boldly proclaimed that this past week. And they told me multiple times, and I believe them, that they want to continue proclaiming that gospel because people are going to go to hell in this country if they don't know about Christ. And so, as they went and as they approached people, the question was asked, I'm so scared. What do I do when I'm scared? Here's what you do when you're scared. When you're nervous to go share the gospel with people, you don't pray to God to take away your fear. You don't ask God to remove it. Rather, you ask for God to give you love that overcomes your fear. Students know that I'm terrified of the ocean because there are sharks in that ocean. And I won't put a toe in the water. But my children don't have the same terror. And if a shark ever came up and if a shark ever tried to get my children, I would not hesitate a second to run into that ocean to save my child. Not because I have any less fear, but because I have deep love for my child. In the same way, you don't pray to have your fear removed. Pray to have love for the person that you're about to talk to. Because if you don't talk to them, they might not ever see Christ for who He is. They might not know the eternity that brings joy but they might know eternal damnation and hell. So in light of these things, when we leave, don't be content to stay silent. Open your mouth. Talk. And go into the world. Preach the gospel. Let's pray. 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. I praise you that you have a gospel that's greater than our sin, a gospel that's greater than our judgment, a gospel that's greater than our fears, a gospel that can meet us in any circumstance. And God, I ask that you would stir in us, move in us, create a passion in us to get up and to go. Not to sit around and wait for something to happen, but to be proactive and to tell people of eternity apart from you and eternity that's with you. And it all is hinged on the person and the work of Christ. And it's in His name I do ask these things and for His sake. Amen.